0: 18 and beginning at verse 1 through verse 14. I've asked Trevor if he would come and read that passage for us. Just stand together as a, that's me. I'm making the noise. You guys don't want to listen to that. I don't think. Is that me? Hopefully. We'll see what happens. All right.
1: Yeah, it is. John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of of those whom you have given me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me?" So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First it led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Thank you. you see OK.
0: We'll see if we can stop that from happening. All right. Today, as you know, is a day we set aside a of things to celebrate and to honor our moms. And um, this isn't going to work. As I said, today is a, is a day we set aside to, to honor moms, and um, it's a day to thank them for the ways that they have loved us through the years, for their, their cooking, their great meals, for caring enough to pick out clothes that match, and for washing our faces, for being a shoulder to cry on when we failed or when life's troubles have... Overwhelmed us for, for believing in us when others would not, for challenging us uh, to greater things, for words of encouragement, for words of correction when we needed it, for teaching us about God and about life, for helping us with our ABCs and our one, two, threes, for changing our diapers and washing our clothes, for teaching us how to brush our teeth and tie our shoes. And we could just go on and on and on just talking about ways that Um, we remember the influence of mom in our lives. So there is so much more. But I think probably the memory that impacts moms the most is the memory of the first time they laid eyes on their little one. A baby is born, but there's so much that took place before that birth. So much agony, so much pain, so much struggle. But Jesus, in like manner, was talking with his disciples about that kind of day. It's a day that begins a time of sorrow that would turn to a time of joy. If you look at John chapter 16, it will remind you of what Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room. John chapter 16 verse 20 through 22 Jesus says truly truly I say to you you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy when a woman is giving birth she has sorrow because her hour has come but when she has delivered the baby she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Now, Jesus has been speaking about the hour throughout his gospel, in particular throughout John's gospel. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles, just note at the wedding in Cana, chapter 2 of John's gospel, And verse 4, Jesus turns to his mother and says, Woman, the hour, uh, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. A couple of chapters later, when Jesus is with the the woman of Samaria, we call her the woman at the well. Chapter 4, verse 21, Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. There's an hour. The hour hasn't come. It's on its way. And then in John chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders in the temple and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Chapter 12, verse 23, some Greeks, some eager Greeks have come. They want to see Jesus and talk to him and Jesus answers them in verse 23 the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified and then, continuing on in that chapter verse 27 now is my soul troubled and what shall I say father save me from this hour but for this purpose I've come into or I have come to this hour He, he came to this hour what is this hour well again In chapter 17 and verse 1, this is Jesus in his prayer after being with the disciples in the upper room. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now, this hour is not a single point in time. Just like we would talk about a, a woman in childbirth, we don't just think about that time when the baby comes out, it's, it's broader than that, it's a series of events, it's pain, it's struggle, it's birth, it's joy. And so what we have here when we think about Jesus' hour is the series of events, these specific series of events of this, this particular time of suffering. Jesus will be betrayed by one of his own. He will be arrested by over 200 soldiers. He will be denied by the leader of his disciples. He will be interrogated by the religious leaders. He will be tried by the Roman governor, Pilate. He will be flogged and mocked and beaten by the Roman soldiers. He will be crucified between two thieves. He will be buried, and then he will rise again. This is all part of this hour. And so we call this the passion of the Christ, the hour of his sorrow, this hour that will turn into celebration of joy. Friends, it is the greatest story ever told. And I want to encourage you over the next number of weeks as we are going through John's Gospel the times that I'm here, because I'll be in Bolivia and different things, we are going to be working our way through the end of this gospel, walking through this passion story. And I would just plead with you, read it, let it soak in and recognize that God has, has given us the gift of seeing his son on display, in particular in the events of what took place as he went to a cross, as he died on the cross, as he bore our sin, and as he rose victoriously from the grave. Now we need to think a little bit about the setting that is in this text. John takes us through this transition from the upper room discourse to the high priestly prayer of Jesus to the hour of Jesus' passion to establish the setting for his encounter with Judas, the betrayer. So Jesus is coming out of this time of prayer, out of this time of interaction with the disciples, knowing fully what was to come. Remember, as we started our service today, just reading those passages in John's Gospel, it was very clear that Jesus understood completely what was before him. But I want you to notice verse 1 of chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the book, Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And there's a phrase that gives movement to the character of Jesus in verse 1 and that sets the course for our understanding of the garden arrest. It is this simple phrase, he went out. Now, I want you to think about that. I think we have this image of Judas coming with the soldiers and entering the garden and looking for Jesus and finding Jesus. But the flow and the angle of Jesus in this text is that he is the one that is taking initiative. He is the one that is stepping out having prepared his disciples for suffering and having communed with the Father in prayer, Jesus now steps forward to face the hour of his suffering. And this forward movement is throughout these events. So we could correctly ask this question, whom or who is arresting whom? Is Jesus really the one that is doing the arresting here? Or is it the soldiers that are arresting? And I would dare say this, that Jesus is the one who's initiating the interaction. He's initiating the contact. He is initiating the events that he knows must take place. And just the reaction of the people in this scenario make it very, very clear. So here is my proposition. Here is how I'm setting up this particular passage of Scripture. The hour has come for Jesus to boldly step forward and initiate the divine plan of our salvation. And Jesus steps forward with control, with, con- with care, and with confidence to usher in the hour of his suffering and death in order to redeem his people from their sins. That's just a wonderful picture. There's, there's movement going on here. Yeah, there's activity of people coming and going, but there is a positioning that Jesus takes. Here he is, the King of kings, the Lamb of God, having prepared himself, having prepared his disciples, having communed with his Father, now steps forward for this hour. And there's something beautiful about that. They didn't have to chase Jesus down. They didn't have to go, you know, looking for him, and he's hiding, and he's cowering in a corner. None of that's taking place at all. Jesus is stepping forward. And all of this is beginning now because the hour has come. And, and just like we read in chapter 17, verse 1, this has come that the Son will glorify the Father and that the Father will glorify the sun. These events not only are going to be sorrowful, but they are going to be glorifying. Now, let's just pause right now. Let's pray together and ask for God's strength as we go through this passage. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to things, Lord, that maybe we haven't seen before. Open our eyes, Lord, to how you want to impact us with the events of your arrest. And Lord, may we May we be humble and teachable, and Lord, may we learn all the lessons that we need to learn today so that either we can come face-to-face with you and believe that you are Jesus Christ, the Son of God, if we have not done so already, but Lord, secondly, if we believe also, Lord, that we would embrace the life, this new life, this abundant life, this everlasting life, Lord, that comes as a result of knowing you. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. I want you to first of all note his control over the darkness. Now, we're going to take our time to develop this, but Jesus boldly steps forward in control over the darkness. In the garden, he, as we've already read, Jesus is in the garden with his disciples. This is a private garden that Jesus and his disciples were allowed to enter into and spend time in. It was a place for them of fellowship where they would enjoy one another's company. It was a place of refuge where they would escape the crowds, the many, many crowds that were there, in particular at this time of the year. It was a place of relaxation where they would rest together. It was a place of communion where they would pray. So Jesus then enters the garden. But not only that, enter Judas. The disciple forever associated with the word Betrayal. I mean, just 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 every time you read Judas in the Bible, almost every time, he is identified as the one who betrayed Jesus. There's a legacy there. Verse two. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus, knowing, or sorry, Judas, knowing that Jesus would be in the garden, chooses this place of intimacy. Get this to perform this act of such great treachery. He goes into this intimate place. This is where he, along with the rest of the disciples, will sit down and spend this time with Jesus. And this is the place that he chooses to perform this act of treachery, and he doesn't come alone. It's quite an amazing picture. Look at verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers, from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with his with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, Judas comes with two groups, a band of Roman soldiers. Now, I don't know how you think about this story, but I think typically the way this story is portrayed is here comes Judas, and there may be about maybe 10 soldiers, Roman soldiers, and there are also some, some officers from the religious Jews, but You know, it's a small group. I mean, how many soldiers do you need to get Jesus? But the word that is used to describe this band of Roman soldiers is a a word that is used to describe a cohort of Roman auxiliaries. And that word can be used to describe a thousand soldiers. Now, some of the historical studies here would basically identify the fact that there weren't a thousand necessarily available. What was more than likely here was going on is there were about 200 to 300 soldiers. Now, even if you went down to 100, you still left yourself asking the question, why so many? Okay? Not only were there Roman soldiers, but there were Jewish temple officers. And ultimately, they were the ones that were doing the arresting. The Roman soldiers were there basically to maintain and keep the peace. But you still have to ask yourself this question. One man, so many soldiers, why? Were they fearful? Possibly. Were they anticipating trouble? Maybe. That was not uncommon. They were prepared. But there's some irony going on in this passage also. Here is... Or here are, I should say, the soldiers and these religious leaders or, say, religious um, temple officers coming with Judas. And they have with them lanterns and torches, get this, to arrest the light of the world. Now, I don't know if that's purposely in there, but you have to ask yourself the question, is there some kind of irony in this illusion? Because we know that throughout John's gospel, John identifies Jesus as what? The light of the world he is the light that has come into the darkness listen to John chapter 8 and verse 12 I am the light Jesus says of the world whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life chapter 1 he is the light that shines in the darkness but the darkness has not overcome it so here at the beginning of Jesus's hour we find that the light of the world is being pursued in the darkness by soldiers with lanterns and torches. There's some irony going on there. The very ones who have the light, or I should say have the need of the light, have come to arrest the light. There's another little bit of irony there, and that is this they come with weapons to arrest the Prince of Peace. Now, obviously, they're soldiers, they carry weapons, but you just wonder whether or not that John has in his mind, as he's recording this, You know, I'm just describing the scene and how absolutely ironic and incredible it is. This mass, this crowd coming to get Jesus, and they all come with these lanterns and these torches and these swords. But then I want you to notice total control. Jesus here is fully in control of the darkness, verse 4. Then Jesus, and catch this words now, knowing all that would happen to him, does what? Came forward. <laughs> There's this movement again. He knows what has taken place. He knows the events that are about to happen. And he doesn't wait. He steps forward. He goes to meet Judas. He goes to meet the soldiers. He goes to meet those temple officials. So he steps forward in the garden with his disciples. But he also steps now forward to meet this band of soldiers. Jesus is sovereign, and he knows all things. He is fully aware of the events that need to take place and will take place. And so, like I said, he steps boldly to meet his accusers. There's no fear. There's boldness. There's certainty. There's conviction. And there's power. And Jesus demonstrates now his total power. For there is nothing in this world, friends, get this, that is accidental. Verse verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says to them, I am he. Now, John emphasizes that Judas was standing with the rest of the crowd. I think it's important to note that. Because even as they're asking this question, Judas is standing there with him. John wants to make sure that we understand, that we see the picture that is going on here because of what is about to be um, communicated. Because we know here Judas standing with the crowd is is a picture of the fact that you can be both a follower and a hypocrite at the same time. Let me just pause here for a second. It is possible and it is common for people to claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be in the context of a church fellowship for years and just maintain that pretense but know in their heart that they're not really a child of God. And I think it's very, very clear here that Judas didn't have some kind of a strange experience and abandoned Jesus. I think he knew all along that he never was a true follower at all. That's evident in some of the things that he says and does along the way. And especially here, the fact that he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So how is it possible that someone could be a part of God's church for a significant amount of time and claim to be a follower, but all the time know that they are just fooling everyone around them? That's a tough question, isn't it? It's also important here for us to notice that Uh, to recognize the impact of that truth uh, with what happened with Judas as well as the others when Jesus said, I am he. Notice again what it says. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. That's verse 5 toward the end of it. And when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It says here, they drew back and fell to the ground. They drew back when Jesus spoke and fell to the ground. What kind of picture is that? I mean, the best way I can I can explain this is this. Have you ever tried to scare someone before? All right, let's just say because we all know we're Christians and we're kind in here that you're not trying to scare anyone, but you happen to come around the corner and someone's minding their own business and all of a sudden they see you and it's like, "Ah!" I think I've told you this before, but there's a guy at our office by the name of Lionel. He's our night cleanup guy, and um, uh, this happens all the time. I mean, and I, I try not to do it, but I'm, I'm there usually on Saturdays in the evening, and he's in there, and he's vacuuming away, and he's got the earbuds in, and I'm trying to maybe go to the restroom or just walking out or whatever it might be, and he's there, and I'm thinking, all right, got to get by this guy, but I do not want to scare him. But sure enough, you know, I have to somehow get his attention, but he's in another world, and as soon as he sees me, he's like, ah! Oh. And one time, man, he's like, oh, man, he's like, Oh, I almost got a heart attack. I wasn't meaning to do that, but there's a sense in which that surprise is impactful to him. Okay? Now, what is going on here? Jesus doesn't just say, I am he. The actual Greek word says, I am. He says, I am. And that expression, I am, goes all the way back into the Old Testament where God is interacting with Moses. And Moses is saying, how can I... How can i do this what will i say and god says to moses moses tell them that i am has sent you the self-existing one the god of this universe i am has sent you and so jesus identifies himself with the god of the old testament as jehovah and when he says i am you can just imagine in saying that how these people responded they drew back And they all fell down, not just the soldiers, not just the officials, but Judas too. Now let that one settle in for a bit. The one who betrays Jesus not only kisses him on the cheek, but falls to the ground after Jesus identifies himself as the I am, as God himself. Now, he's clearly wanting those arresting him to know whom it is that they are arresting. I would say that's the first reason he does this. I would say, secondly, it's also an act of mercy. Let me explain what I mean. If Jesus is identifying himself as the I am, and these people are responding in that way, they are still getting up from that falling down, which means that they are alive, even though apparently they've had an encounter with God, and they still have an opportunity to do what? To repent, to acknowledge, to worship. It's an act of mercy on Jesus' part, but we don't see any of that, do we? We don't see any of that. What we see is ultimately them arresting Jesus anyway. So Jesus boldly steps forward in control of the darkness, He's fully aware of what's going on, fully aware of the darkness, fully aware of the attitudes and the, the, the purposes of man to get him and to grab him and, and to, to put him on trial, all that he is aware of, but he's fully in control of it. And so he boldly steps forward into that darkness. But he also boldly steps forward, secondly, to care for his disciples. Jesus boldly steps forward in care of the disciples. Again, Jesus takes the initiative and steps out to speak. Verse 7, so he asked them again. All right, once you've gotten up, once you're all together, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was, and this is kind of like parenthetical, this is John now narrating, giving us an understanding of what was going on. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you you gave me, I have lost none or no one. Jesus speaks up in defense of his own. The arresting party comes, and they want to... Uh, to take him, and Jesus is saying, Listen, your concern is with the shepherd, not the sheep. So please I'm going to step forward and I'm going to make sure that you are not harming any of those. Now this is simply one small example of Jesus's fulfillment of what he has promised. John chapter six and verse thirty nine. This is the first time we find Jesus in john 's gospel making this promise. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So remember this picture here. All those who are the followers of Jesus, genuine followers of Jesus, are those whom the Father has given him, right? That's what it says. And he says, and I am not going to lose any of them. Now jump to chapter 17. This is when he's praying. And verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled, talking there about Judas. And so when, when Jesus is speaking and he's saying, listen, uh, so if you seek me, let these men go, he is fulfilling those promises that he has made about those that the Father has given him. He cares for his disciples in this particular situation, we broaden it out, and we also recognize that he cares for all who follow him. He keeps his promises to those who follow him. Just listen to these promises from God's word. I'll put the verses up on the screen here, but just listen as I read to these promises. Hebrews seven twenty-five. Consequently, he, that's Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So he intercedes. Second Timothy 1.12, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am, con- I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2.18, for because he himself has suffered we, uh, when tempted, um, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He helps. And Jude 24 and 25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before time and now and forever. Amen. So collectively, these verses teach us that Jesus protects us by his grace. He helps us when we're tempted. He guards us when we're being led astray. He intercedes for us. He keeps us from stumbling. He finishes what he has started in us. Why? Because we are the objects of his grace. Because we are gifts from the Father. Because we are the reason he is going to the cross. Because he has come to die on our behalf. See, he cares for his own. He acts. He steps forward to protect and to care for his own. He doesn't just step forward to control the darkness. He also steps forward to care for his own. Okay? Just this movement, beautiful picture of his love and his care. How does he do that? By placing himself between us and our enemies. What an absolutely incredible Savior we have. Now, friends, there there are things that Jesus does and is doing that you don't tangibly see. But he is there as our advocate, as our covering as our protector, as our guide, as our helper. In so many different ways, he is coming to our aid. Why? Because he cares for us. I love that Philippians 1.6, where Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, talking about Jesus, will bring it to completion. He always finishes what he starts. That doesn't mean it's going to be an easy road. It doesn't mean that everything is just going to be, you know, hunky-dory and it's fine, it's wonderful, and just have a great time. No, it means that even though there are going to be difficult times, he will finish what he needs to finish in you. So as you're going through these times and seasons of life, you say, Lord, I'm resting, I'm holding onto who you are, my great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So not only does he step out to care for his disciples, and to control the darkness. But he also steps out um, in confidence, embracing the cup. He boldly steps forward in confidence of that cup. Now, let's look at verse 10 and following here. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Parentheses here. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink of the cup that the Father has given me? Now, why are we not surprised at Peter and his actions here? Why is it that he is always, you know, he's the first one to speak. He's the first one to act. He's telling Jesus what you should and what you shouldn't do. He's been called a few names by Jesus that none of us want to be called. But Peter, the disciple that speaks up and speaks out, once again rushes in and rushes ahead and tries to do things however well-meaning that he believes should be done rather than trusting his master. Now, either Peter was extremely accurate in cutting the ear of Malchus, or he was extremely inept. And I think probably for a fisherman, it was the latter. But you have to ask yourself, a few questions. Did he really think that he could take on these 100, 200 soldiers? D.A. Carson says it well. The blow was, a clump, was as clumsy as Peter's courage was great. The tactic was as pointless as Peter's misunderstanding was total. Peter's bravery was not only useless, but it was a denial of what Jesus had set himself apart to do now John doesn't necessarily bring this out but that's why we took time to to think through what Mark says in his gospel and revealing Jesus's interaction with the disciples saying this is what's going to happen to me so clearly Peter had understood this is what's going to happen to, to to Jesus and even in the upper room accounts in John's gospel he says listen it's going to be a time of trouble for you this is what's going to happen so Peter, though, apparently still is wrestling with that and wants to do his things his way. I mean, does does Jesus really need Peter's protection? But maybe the baseness of Judas brought out the boldness of Peter. Just stop and think about this. Just think about the, the interrelationship here between the disciples and Judas. Here's a guy that you have been fellowshipping with, you've been ministering with. Remember they went out two by two into different places? I wonder if Peter at one point in time went with Judas somewhere and they, you know, they had a bond because they were disciples together and they connected and they did ministry and they came back and they fellowshiped. Only to find out after that time in the upper room that Judas now was walking with these soldiers. Can you think what Peter is probably experiencing in his being? He doesn't know who it is yet until Judas rounds the corner. He's doing everything he can to fight away his emotions, and ultimately, boop, this is what happens. I'm not sure exactly the motive of the heart, but you just wonder if those things are true. How would you be tempted to respond to someone you consider trustworthy, a co-laborer, and a friend who has just betrayed you or is in the process of betraying you? you might loosen your emotions and respond in a way that would not honor God, right? Now, friends, there is a, there's a lesson here. And the first lesson I want us to notice here is this. There is this danger of holy zeal. Now, this is something we, we need to pull out of this passage. We need to recognize. There's, there's a caution here that we should pay attention to, that there may be times in our Christian lives when we will be tempted to strike out in holy zeal. Let me give you a couple of examples. It may take place when we feel like the name of Jesus is being desecrated. Have you ever been to like a ball game or maybe to a restaurant or someplace and there's someone around you that is just like yappity, yappity, yapping. Every time he's yappity, yapping, he's taking the Lord's name in vain. He's just yakking away. And you're just like, I can't put up with this. And what potentially could happen is in your holy zeal, You respond in the flesh. It takes place when vandalism or interference takes place because we're trying to build the church of God. And I praise the Lord we haven't had much experience with this. We haven't had, like, you know, cars broken into or any damage take place. Um, But there's always the potential of that. And, and, And how would we respond? Because ultimately people are making a statement more than they are just vandalizing. It takes place when those who oppose the work of God seek to undermine it through slander and accusation. And friends, it's so easy for us to allow those, I want to say, spiritual justifications to rise up in physical violence. And we will justify it with a holy zeal. And friends, you must be very, very careful that, that rather than allowing a, a, a physical response of physical force, there should be a response to call in the spiritual armies to accomplish what God desires to accomplish. Now friends, there's a balance there between what is appropriate and right and just in a nation where there is rule and order, that's one thing. There's a whole nother dynamic where we say, this is certainly spiritual and religious persecution and how are we going to respond Are we going to respond in kind or are we going to respond in a Christ-like way? So there's some lessons here. I think we glean that from, from what Jesus says here to Peter. This is not a time to pull out your sword, Peter. This is a time for me to humble myself and confidently step forward to embrace the cup that God the Father has for me. All right, Peter's saying, no, Jesus is saying, oh, but I have to. Peter's saying, you can't, and Peter says, or Jesus says, I must, and I will, so put it away. Totally and completely in control, totally stepping out and stepping forward to embrace this cup. And so Jesus, secondly here then, has this confidence in This cup, this confidence in the wrath of God. Now, there are two cups that are talked about in Scripture, generally speaking. There's the cup of salvation, and that would be Psalm 116, verse 13. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. There's also the cup of God's wrath. But get this, every person who ever lived shall drink from one of these cups. They will either, if they're a believer, drink from the cup of salvation And if they are an unbeliever, ultimately they will drink from the cup of God's wrath. An unbeliever will stand in that day having no hope and no leg to stand on and will receive fully and completely the wrath of God. Those who believe, those who have embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they will stand because they have drunk the cup of salvation and ultimately Those who drink the cup of salvation by God's grace will drink of it only get this because Jesus drank of the cup of God's wrath in their place. And Jesus is willing to drink the cup of suffering so that we can satisfy our thirst at the cup of salvation. The point is that Jesus is boldly stepping out with confidence in the cup as a means or as the means necessary to satisfy God's wrath. He wants to take it on. He embraces it. He's confident that this is what must take place. And so the cup of God's wrath is the necessary aspect of Christ's death on the cross. It's the pouring out on Jesus the sin of mankind. Now, some of you may have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ. But there's a flaw in that movie. I don't mean a technical flaw. I don't mean a flaw storyline. It's a whole other thing. You cannot, by means of TV or a movie or video, portray the impact and the power and the weight and the significance of the wrath of God that was poured out on the Son of God. You can't do it. It's too huge. It's too. It's too um, magnificent. But friends, that is what he has done for all of us. He has taken our place. He has embraced on his shoulders the wrath of the Father, and that ultimately is the means by which our sins have been purged. It is also the turning away of the Father, his face, away from the Son, as Jesus Christ hangs as that sacrifice once for all. So Jesus takes upon himself the the wrath of the Father so that we don't have to. God's wrath must be satisfied either on those who are unbelievers or on the perfect Son of God, the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ himself. Now, there is a final arresting irony. Look at verse 10 following. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews, what? Arrested Jesus and bound him. <laughs> That's right. They arrested Jesus and they bound him. Like they had power over him. No, he humbled himself for that arrest, for that binding, knowing as the song says, that he could have called on any resource, angels, to deliver him that point in time. But you know what? He wouldn't do that. He ultimately, technically, theologically, he couldn't because he still had to go to that cross. But Jesus, the one full of power, embraces meekness in his humiliation to be arrested, and to be bound, and then taken off to trial And the other irony is in verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And there's more about that next time we come together. But there's this irony that is just listed here in this account. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And we see in the flow of activity that it is Jesus, the majestic king, that he is fully in control and purposely moving toward the cross get this, on his terms and in his way. But his accusers think that they have the upper hand. Now, I want to kind of bring this to a close by means of some application here. Just some thinking about us and what what does this mean for us. Final thoughts here. Number one, Jesus controls Not only is Jesus fully in control of the darkness in that particular circumstance, Jesus is is in control of the darkness everywhere. And he's in control of the darkness everywhere and at all times and throughout time, which ultimately means that Jesus controls your darkness, your struggles, your circumstances, your emptiness, your conflicts. And he's calling on you to submit to his wisdom and follow him. It's not just that God is aware of these things. He is in control of them. He is accomplishing his purposes and bringing about his plan on this earth through all the trials, through all the struggles, through all the joys that you are experiencing. He is in control of that. He is in control of that neighbor that is constantly causing you trouble. He's in control of that coworker that is trying to, you know, always outdo you and impress the the, the leadership there and, and take things away from you because they want to step ahead. He's in control of all of that. And so by means of the fact that he's in control of all that, we can humble ourselves before him and say, God, I recognize that you are not only aware, but you are in control and you are purposing your plan in the midst of my struggle and darkness. And so I need your wisdom to know what I should do to bring glory to your name and to be a a place um, of of evangelism, a place of, of glory, of your glory shining through even my difficulty." He is in control. And, friends, he wants us to embrace it and to recognize it and, and to really humble ourselves to it. The second thing is this. Jesus cares. Jesus cares. Nice. Okay, that's kind of, yeah, I know. Jesus cares, you know. Now listen, he really does. When, when Jesus stepped toward the cross, he was stepping, not just some out of, out of some theological necessity to get to the cross, but Along with that theological necessity was this whole heart, joy, and satisfaction that he was providing for you the ability of reconciliation with the Father. He cares about your reconciliation. He cares about your struggles. He cares about the, 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 the arguments you may have or the conflict that you may have. He cares about those, those fears that, that you may experience. So he acts on your behalf even when you don't see it. He not only controls the darkness around you, he also cares about your struggling in that darkness. He understands what you're going through. He empathizes with you. He cares. And the last thing is this. We have touched on it a little bit. Jesus completes. He always finishes the job he always finishes what he starts and he right now if you're one of his children he is in the the process and in the business of drawing you further to himself of of conforming you to be more like himself and he's using all different avenues and vehicles to do that in your life and so when you're going through a difficult time of trial what does James say count it all what Joy. How in the world can James say, count it all joy when I'm facing this difficult trial? And by the way, it's not just kind of like, well, it's joy. It's like, all right, here's the trial. But you've got to wrestle it down into this joy category and push it there. And what gives you the ability to wrestle and to push it down into that place? It's the certainty that Jesus Christ is not finished his work in you. He is in the process of completing it in you. And so I force it down to the joy category, and I shift my thinking. I say, okay, I put it in the joy category, and now he adds to that, you know, patience and steadfastness for all the things that are there. He is at work completing what he has started. And so we're able to apply all these principles from God's word from all these different places because we know and we're confident that Jesus completes What he starts. Now, let me just talk to you about some of that. Some of you are going through trials. Some some of you are are having difficulty in marriage. There's conflict, there's struggle. Some of you are are facing financial difficulty. Some of you are are, are looking for work. and, And there's just, I mean, there's all sorts of difficult things going on. But get this Jesus is in control of all that. Jesus cares about you in the midst of all that. He has not abandoned you. He will not abandon you. And in the midst of all that, what is he doing? He is working on your completion. See, Jesus was not really the one being arrested. Jesus was the one initiating... The beginning of his hour, fully in control, caring for his own, confident in the cup of suffering that lay before him. What an absolutely majestic and powerful and awesome Jesus we serve. Lord, thank you again for your word. There's a sense in which these events do seem rather distant to us because we are not there. And yet, Lord, the blessing of your word takes us there through the gospel writers. And Lord, we we just we just see who you are, Lord, not just simply as as a victim under the uh, the um, under the arms of this Roman tyranny, but Lord, as the majestic King of Kings regally going through. Lord, this time of suffering to the cross. How amazing you are. Even in your humanity, even in your suffering, you demonstrate a poise that is rooted in the eternal purposes of the Godhead. You know what you came to do. You communicated that to those whom you loved, and you pressed on even in the difficulty and the suffering that you would face to accomplish the plan of redemption, to bring reconciliation and to bring life to those who would believe. And Lord, this morning, I wonder if there are those who would maybe identify with Judas here this morning, who may have been a part of of the body of Christ in some way, shape, or form over the last number of years or maybe even months, who, who claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, who, who have the, the image of that, who, who have the habits of that, but they in their heart know that they are not one of yours. And if the right circumstances came around where they could be freed or liberated and they would be exposed, or that they would do that. Lord, I I pray for that person today. I pray for your mercy and your grace that still speaks to that person in such a way that you say, I am he. Will you worship me? Will you bow down before me? Not just cower and be blown away by who I am, but that you would come and be reconciled to me. Lord, may we who are true followers, genuine followers, Lord, recognize the, the, the magnitude of who you are the great care and the love and concern that you had for us that that pushed you and pressed you to the cross so that we would be reconciled to you. Lord, may we be in awe of that. May it feed us. May it give us fuel, Lord, to face those challenges that are before us, knowing that you care, knowing that you're in control. And Lord, may your confidence spill over to us that we would also be confident in the fact that you have been the recipient of your Father's wrath and that we are sheltered by your righteousness. And Lord, that we are not the recipients of that wrath because you are, but Lord, we are the recipients of your grace. And we can live in that grace with your strength and for your glory. Lord, would you... Challenge us? Would you shape us? Would you regenerate us? We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.
1: Amen. Please.